0: This episode is sponsored by Marquette Associates. Marquette is an independent investment consulting firm that was founded in 1986 and has served the same mission ever since, to be a trusted partner to their clients and provide meaningful and thoughtful investment guidance. They've worked with dozens of public organizations in Illinois and as of December 31st, 2020, that includes 20 firefighter funds across the state, as well as the new consolidated firefighter's pension investment fund. Marquette is headquartered in Chicago, and we're grateful for their support of the podcast. You can learn more about Marquette on their website at MarquetteAssociates.com. This is not an endorsement of Marquette's Services.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Associated Firefighters of Illinois podcast. With me, as always, is the amazing Luke Howison. Luke, introduce yourself.
0: Morning, Jerry. You're you're dropping the Timmy now, huh? (laughs) (laughs) It's over with.
1: I don't know if you like it or not. I love calling you Luke slash Timmy. I will call you Luke slash Timmy for decades. I
0: don't know. I think think people love it. Yeah. Might as well just roll with it. I'm thinking it might be part of my campaign next year. right well
1: if you don't like I'm luke
0: cartman on my shirt
1: exactly. well but here's the thing you'd be a split personality vp if you don't like luke vote for tim yeah that's fine. exactly it it is, it is, is. yeah i got two candidates running <laughs> it is what it is and we are fresh off the uh the 21 ledge conference so everyone has uh lived and survived that one so yeah that's fantastic. and that,
0: that was great we were talking earlier about All the great feedback we got there from everybody about the podcast. So
1: people are actually listening.
0: Wanna keep them going.
1: Yeah, we do. And speaking of that, and our our guest will will laugh, but like as you know, Chuck needs I I don't know what is this episode I don't know what Yeah, we'll we'll have to figure it out. We go out out of order and okay, all right. We should just
0: put out podcasts. That's all we should It is
1: an episode. We're just the talent. It is what it is. Yeah. And uh, and speaking of talent, we have a really great topic today for you because it is a very timely relevant topic because uh, in, in prepping for this episode, we were, we were talking about how there there really is like this weird Venn diagram as I always refer to it of, you know, collective bargaining, um, article four to pension code and also work comp. And there's just, I had an employer attorney laugh one time. He said, we're dealing with public employees. There's laws flying around all over the place. And that's a very appropriate way to put it. Uh, because all of these kind of interplay and overlap, etc. So we thought it was really important because we get a lot of questions at the Associated Firefighters about workers' compensation issues and how do I file, and what do I file, and who should I talk to, what rights do I have, you know, how, how does that work from kind of the time of injury through the time of the, uh, the Industrial Commission wrapping the case up, so to speak, and we have a very special guest who's a very good attorney in the work comp area, Patrick Sorotka, and we are super happy that he is here. So, Pat, welcome to uh, the AFFI podcast.
2: Well, thank you, Jerry, and, uh, and uh, Luke for having me out. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here, so thank you.
1: Absolutely. Oh, no, we're, we're doing that later on. Okay, no worries. Um. So, first of all, you, what was the creature's name from the Mandalorian that's on your wall? What was the...
2: Oh, my kid gave me a Yoda sticker. Yeah, it's Baby
1: Yoda, but I was looking at it, and I can't remember the names. Grogu. Grogu, of course. Grogu is the adorable little creature. So I'm looking at Grogu, which makes me happy. So let's talk about the Wonderful World of Work comp. First of all, please just introduce yourself for the audience, how long you've been practicing, etc.
2: Yeah, well, Patrick Soroka of Soroka Law. I've been practicing for the last 16 years and representing firefighters throughout the state. I started doing presentations uh, with Jim Bruno out of Kankakee. He's a member of the honor guard. He's now living in San Antonio. Yeah, he has definitely uh, moved on to greener pastures. And uh, yeah, ever since then, ever since then, I've been working with firefighters throughout the state uh, the last 16 years. So I've been litigating cases. And most importantly for, I've been speaking before unions, obviously for all those years as well. And it's been extremely useful to have the feedback from the locals and the guys and see what they're hearing on the ground. And because you'll see the first probably eight years of practice, it was a lot less litigious. There's been changes in the act that drive litigation, fighting cases. And then over the last five to six, seven years, there have been a lot more tricks that adjusters use. There's all these third-party companies like CCMSI and Gallagher-Bassett and IPRF and IPMG. And, you know, what guys may not realize is they're involved in litigation from the time they provide notice of the injury which legally they should do within the first 45 days. And many departments have that codified with Form 45s. Yeah. Um, the troubling issue as of late is there's companies called like MedCorp, and someone gets hurt, and in some places they have to speak after getting injured, reporting it to their supervising officer, they have to come and speak um, over the phone and get a recorded statement. I just had this issue. We're going to talk about yeah, that, So I'm glad really you problematic. It up. So. Yes. What they're really doing now is, you know, and that evidence is the issue that you're involved in litigation from the jump because they're getting you on the record. And the only reason they do that is to box you into a story about how you got hurt, if you had any preexisting problems, and you just got hurt. You're under the stress of the accident and the situation. You're concerned about your job, and they're getting you on a phone ostensibly to talk to some nurse who can somehow validate whether you should get treatment over the phone, which is just magical. And we're going to talk about lines of treatment. Yeah, we're going to get through all those things. Yes. But So they get you into a story and box you in. So if there's any subsequent difference in what you're saying, um, in the medical records or anywhere else, they can point back and say, see, see, he's being inconsistent. Don't authorize that MRI. Right, or right, don't right. release him back to work full duty. So they can and will, and it's designed to put you on the record so they can get whatever evidence they can to use against you. I mean, I had, I've had a myriad examples that so I could it, talk about. It
1: is funny that you that you talked about like the last eight years, because I, I couldn't put a number on it, but I have noticed, so on the labor end, I know enough about work comp to be dangerous to kind of guide people through or direct them to an attorney, but I don't practice work comp. But I have noticed that these things have gotten a little bit... Uh, a little bit more contentious over the years, especially with the third-party intake and trying to record and nurses asking questions in very certain ways. It's, I, yeah. I have noticed that there's been a marked difference over the last several years, I would say. It's would huge. More it's,
2: there's dirty tricks. So first of all, every time you treat, you're creating medical evidence, the most persuasive medical evidence that you're ever going to have in a case, The especially the first treatment records closest in time to the occurrence of injury which is why all of the departments send you to the occupational doc in the box. And these places are are renowned for underreporting injuries, for okay. not doing proper orthopedic examinations. Put some ice
1: on it, you're good to go.
2: Yeah, but just <laughs> not recording things properly. Once again, it is evidence. And the judges look at the very first um, medical records as being most persuasive. Like they said, if you so if things pop up later on, two months down the road, or a month down the road, they weren't initially recorded, they're going to try to think that you're being inconsistent or malingering, mm-hmm. and it's going to affect whether they authorize benefits. So... You know, if, if at all possible, and this is where the insubordination charges get really upsetting. A guy wants to go to his own doctor and not the doc in the box, and now the chief or whomever might be saying, hey, "Well, it's insubordinate for you to not go to this occupational doctor." When the law itself is, they have an absolute unfettered right to have two choices of doctor, and they have an absolute right to treat with the doctor of their own uh, their own choosing and right. not to be directed by the department. and so if people have to go to the doc in the box, and I can appreciate that no one wants to fight that fight from the jump. So if you're going to the doctor, that's fine. That's emergency care. It doesn't count as a choice. But do not go back a second time, because if you do, then you've adopted them as a treater and burned one choice.
1: That's correct. Yes.
2: So you don't want to fall into that mistake. And guys are like, well, I got to get a release to work note. What do I do? Well, what I've been doing for the last you know 16 years is cross-examining every orthopedic surgeon in the state. And, of course, I confer with my colleagues, and we know which doctors get consistently excellent outcomes from surgery, which ones don't, which ones are really tied to the insurance company and you can't rely on for loyalty or true treatment options. And so I had people take you know, give me a call if you're thinking about a doctor. Most guys would be like, well, my buddy had some good experience with this guy or that guy. And that's nice. It's anecdotal. But I've seen thousands of back surgeries, thousands of knee and shoulder surgeries. And so just the experience of having That much um, experience cross examining doctors, seeing them treat patients, seeing their outcomes, please use me as a free resource. And so, guys, getting back to the point of getting work release, I can get guys with a good orthopedic doctor in within two to three business days. So they don't have to be concerned with it. It takes six weeks to get in to see somebody. Yeah, it gives you a couple days. And then that feeds to another new thing that the departments are doing. And they have this, um, uh, they make it sound like some uh, Jocko, um, you know, Spartan. Plan um, and it's them. It's their medical network, and they call it like um, battlefield uh, rehab or some kind of thing like this. And they sell it as an option for guys to go to see a doctor more quickly than it would otherwise be, as you sure. alluded to. The problem with that is these doctors are all tied into the occupational medicine department. These are the same doctors that they go to for these independent medical evaluations, where doctors make thousands of dollars to write reports denying a need for injury. Pardon me, denying a need for surgery relates to the work injury or pronouncing pre-existing problems which weren't an issue before the injury. So they're going to get from these new programs that I see being installed throughout the far western, northwestern suburbs up to Waukegan, down to Addison, they're getting shuttled off. And even throughout the southwest suburbs, they're getting shuttled off to these doctor groups. And they're like, well, it'll get me back to the job sooner. No, you're going to go to a doctor's loyalties to the insurance company or the risk manager, and they're going to document things in a certain way. Um, they're going to send you to MRI providers who don't have the top technology. So they'll say, well, there's nothing on the knee MRI because it's a you know Tesla you know 0.75. It's not state of the art. And that way they can kind of stack the deck. So sure. getting back to the thing is every time you treat, you're creating medical evidence. And that's why they're trying to guide their membership into these occupational-related doctors who are not going to provide the quality of care. And they can't be relied on to dictate the notes in the medical evidence that's going to be relied upon by me to prove that their injury and need for time off is related.
1: Well, let's. So, what I want to do though is, I'm sorry.
0: Dude. No, I just uh, real quick, just because we're getting into treatments and stuff. Just on the basics, right off the bat, I'm hurt at work. So that's mm-hmm. what I wanted you to know, do. Like, hey, like, like, I'll like let's, it down. let's, yeah, like what? It's cool. I go to the ER or I go to that occupational doc because mm-hmm. I, I got to start treatment. And like you said earlier, that doesn't count against me because um, right off the bat, I can't be thinking about what doctor I'm going to go to, right? So. so just I kind was, of make
1: it. Just to kind of, be, yeah, that's what I was going to do is that what I'd like to do is, because we have kind of a general overview, but but Luke slash Timothy, you're right. I want to get into the kind of like the nuts and bolts from the perspective of, you know, the guy on the back step. So, you know, I don't know, some, you know, you're on a call at 1.30 in the morning. And it's a lift injury and you hear something pop in your back and, you know, I don't know, go ahead. So um, y- you are going to go to the emergency room at that time for some type of, immediate checkout or something along those lines, correct? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that.
2: No, no, that's the best place to go. If ER is the choice, that's the best place over an Oc, OC facility. Yeah. Um, and what you want to do, obviously, very basically, is you want to provide notice that I was doing well and working my full-duty job, and I looked at the patient off the off the gurney and felt a pop in my back, and I've had pain into my back or my butt ever Radiated since, down my leg. Radiated down my leg. If you have radiation, that's extremely important. And then even if you have smaller issues, uh, like guys are like, well, my back's a main problem. I tweak my elbow, and my arm, bring up the elbow and the arm at the emergency room.
1: Right. Throw everything against the wall, what throw you're it. feeling.
2: Cause guys, you know, you guys just culturally, you get hurt all the time and you're not really inclined to complain or bring up every small issue. Cause if you did, you wouldn't be a firefighter. And so, but that first time you're creating medical evidence. So throw it all at the wall, Jer. Yeah. And then if it's, if, it, if those things get better, then that's great. But you don't want to bring up for the first time a month after that emergency. Oh, my,
1: by the way, my elbow, right? Right.
2: Now, if you do go to the doc
1: in the box or the OCH Health Place, I have, you know, the employer says, no, we're ordering you to go to the doc in the box. Okay. Now, what I've always done is to have uh, my guys say, I'm going to go there, but I'm going to put right on the record with them you're not treating me I am here because I was you know ordered to come here by the employer and you're evaluating me and go ahead and evaluate away I've literally like tried to have my guys say those magic words so yeah. I, I think that helps but you you would know
2: no no it's nice because it makes it clear it's not a choice of theirs um and then and that's really sound advice at the same time they're getting some type of treatment right. regardless. And the important thing is that they don't go back a second time. Okay. So because, that's really the key issue is yeah, to just you can go one
1: time for the emergency, treat, you know, quote unquote emergency, don't go back again, follow up with your own doctor.
2: Exactly. And follow up with your own doctor as soon as you can, because you want to make sure the earliest recorded incidents of your records, you also have your own doctor weighing in, not just those of the doctor.
1: And, and, and I, just to break it down, because we've Doing this for years, it's a little bit of, we We tried to design this podcast for, you know, individuals that are just on the back step, going to and from mm-hmm. shift, that want to learn more. Um, and I want to talk about the two lines of treatment. Can you just, can we break that down for a minute? Sure. What that means in the statute, what that means practically. So when we say two lines of treatment, the person
2: listening to this podcast, what do they need to know about that? Okay, well, I guess maybe it in a more understandable way is you have, two chains of referrals, maybe that's less understandable. Yeah. <laughs> so when you go to your first doctor, let's say you go to a primary care doctor, you're, that's a choice of doctor after emergency care. And then anywhere that doctor might refer you still was, stays within that one chain of referral. That's why I like to refer to it as a chain of referral. Okay. So as long as you get that referral from, let's say, your internist to an orthopedic knee guy or back guy or whatever it might be, then you should be fine. And then you'll also, of course, still maintain that second choice of referral, that second choice of doctor. So you just want to make sure you keep getting that note linking you to the next doctor you see.
1: So if I am injured, I go see my primary care doctor. He refers me out to super badass
2: ortho guy at Rush, right? Because he refers me to him. No, you don't want to go there. (laughs) (laughs) But so, yeah, let me jump in. So the thing is, Primary care doctors are great, and that used to be the old meme recommendation. That's what I used to recommend for years. The problem now is because all the major hospital systems, the advocates, and the Rush and the Northwesterns, and um, many others, Amida, they've gobbled up all the internists and all the other practice specialties to be within their group. So the problem now becomes is if you go to your primary care doctor, they're not going to refer you outside of the treatment group. Oh, yeah, right. So, if your primary care
1: doctors are rush, they're going to say, go see this person, or Northwestern, go see this person.
2: Or, like the advocate or me, they're only going to refer to their guys. Correct. And a lot of the guys in the farther western suburbs and farther southwest suburbs, a lot of those orthopedic groups that, that used to do a lot of IME defense oriented work are in those groups. Right. You're, you're going to be sent to a doctor that's just philosophically more inclined to want to protect the insurance company over the patient, very frankly.
1: So, let me ask you this. So, ideally speaking, you can wave your magic wand, a guy gets hurt goes to the dock in the box, okay? Yeah. The next day, and I actually agree with you. You had said this a while back. I, what I tell my people, to, anybody that called me or comp is what I tell them to do, and it, it sounds terrible, but it is. it has become more litigious. So I feel I've been forced to do this. I tell all of them. Go hire a work comp attorney immediately. I, yeah. I do, I because yeah. it, it has just gotten so bad that I'm just like, no, like the next day you should be hiring, contacting a
2: work comp. Well, attorney. You should be contacting one, and hiring is a big deal. See, we don't work hourly, and I tell guys, I, I want to get the phone call where I go see a treatment, and I'm not going to give you any pressure to file a claim. I know guys don't want to file claims. You got one employer; it's a very difficult situation. All you want to do is get back to work. But that culture and that need can be very difficult, create a lot of problems, and guys end up sabotaging their cases because of their natural uh, natural disinclination to, to, underplay to, it. to want to call an attorney. Who wants to call a guy like me? You just want to get your job back and go back. But unfortunately, the system is stacked against you being a stand-up guy. Right. So you call an attorney, consultation's free. I say, guys, give me a call. Find out, hey, I was thinking about this doctor. What is, what's your experience been? Or this doctor or that doctor? So consult an attorney, and they'll talk to you about those things without any... They shouldn't be pushing you to hire them right away. But it's most important that they get the information they need at the moment they need it so they can make the best decision about a really important aspect, which is choice of treater. It's not only about quality of care. It's also about how they're going to notate that injury. How Are they, are they philosophically you know, affiliated with insurance companies? or?
1: So you what know. you're saying, though, really is... is you know, again, so you get out of the dock in the box, you go home, you 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 go to sleep after being injured at one o'clock in the morning. What you're really saying is go kind of to, or find the specialist first, go that to would be that best. specialist first. So mm-hmm. skip the primary care, or internal medicine or whatever. And this is the knee guy I really like. You're just going to make an appointment and see
2: him and he becomes your first uh, Treat for chain of referral. Exactly. The okay. first choice. And, you know, you always maintain that second choice if you want a second opinion. If the surgery is going to come out, you want to have a discussion, maybe bounce it off somebody else, you've maintained that second choice to give yourself that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of an option and it's really important. And, you know, like many attorneys, I have relationships with doctors. I don't get client referrals from them. I certainly don't get any compensation of any kind. But the doctors that I associate myself or with are those that I've seen who have consistently outstanding outcomes at surgery because of what's demanded of your job is so extreme that you guys really do need the best possible orthopedic specialists to be working yes. on. And ones that we know, of course, the only reason I choose them is the results from surgery and that they are on the patient's side and they will notate things fully. Um, especially after having surgery, there is this phenomenon with many surgeons, and it's not, um, there's no negative um, animus behind it. It's just that guys, obviously, they've got a pretty healthy ego. They're, they're surgeons, they went to medical school, they're operating on human bodies. They've got a high opinion of themselves, as they should to a certain degree. And so a uh, common phenomenon that, that can be problematic for guys is after they get surgery, um, even if they have problems or issue, that doctor does not want to write those things down into the records because they kind of feel like, well, my magical hands have done the work. How right, could right, they right. possibly have yeah. any residual How could there issue? be any
1: issue other than the best possible outcome? Right. And so
2: that's an issue you have to wash out, too. And there's no way for you to know that. And that's why it's really important to consult with an attorney who's seen thousands of injuries who knows the players in the system to kind of guide you to make that right choice
1: and so so we talked about the the two i, I would say chains of i actually that is a way better way of putting it Two ch- like chains of referral two lines um but i also want to talk about document i want to move into like documentation statements because this really seems to be the issue a lot a lot of people do kind of understand at least anecdotally the the kind of like the two I get two doctors you know some that type of thing, although this really cleared it up, um, but there does seem to be the issues with statements, documentation, etc. So what by law are you required to fill out when you suffer a work related injury for your employer? What are you required to fill out?
2: Well, the form forty five has been the class. So the thing. form forty five. And legally speaking. You have 45 days to provide notice of the injury, verbal or written. Obviously, it's better to create the paper. Right. And, you know, you tell how it happened, leave it short and simple, and move on from there. That's all you have to do under the law, and that's what's wisest to do to avoid too much discussion. Less, t- less detail, more better. Sure.
0: So I, I believe some departments still, because they're kind of old school or historic in the way they do things, a lot mm-hmm. of times they might just write an on-duty injury in their logbook. You know, if, it, if like, let's say I just felt something, but I didn't go to the doctor or whatever, they may say, hey, you know, Luke Howison did this at 0800 hours, and then that's how they document it. Does that kind of help you, or are you better off going with um, the forms? I mean, most departments now, I think, are really pushing the injury forms just because of the climate we're in, but I believe yeah. there's still some departments, they might just create the record, especially if I don't seek treatment, but they might create a record that, hey, I, I tweaked my back or I, I, you know, I did something minor. Mm-hmm. And then at least that, that way there's at least some type of documentation. But
2: Yeah, that's good. And, and the thing with logbook, though, is there's not a lot of, there's not discovering workers' compensation. So there's some departments where the personnel files after they subpoenaed them aren't complete, and they may not contain that log file. Right. So I would encourage that member, if that's the extent of the documentation, to write a letter to their commanding officer and keep a copy of that.
1: Well, conversely, though, I've Email, seen, too. Y- yeah. It's a, huge. It helps. An email chain would help. And conversely, what I've seen is, um, you know, not only is it the Form 45, but it's sort of like some like an internal report of injury these guys have to fill out, and then they have, like, their own department forms, and mm-hmm. you know, you're, like, doing this stuff in triplicate. I I never understood the necessity of that, but it is what it is. I've had guys where they've given them direct orders. You have to come in on your off day and fill out these forms. I mean, you're sitting here correctly. Like you listen, got 45 days to do this.
2: Listen, yeah. And, and it's incumbent though, that you in time, it's a better situation for you from evidence perspective that you make as better. soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Once, once you know that it's more than a strain, it's, it, it makes sense and protect yourself to make that documentation. Okay. And listen, I love the old way with the more forms. What scares me is this new med core stuff where they're not making written stuff. They're doing these recorded statements and getting you. Yes. So the person's naturally going to be asked a lot of Q and a, there's going to be much more extensive history, which just gives them different opportunities to attack the case. So I, have I have a local.
1: It. I have a local right now, local 50, and uh, we have filed, you know, demands to bargain, gone over each individual question, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because there is this third party. Um, but what I want to get, I want to, in my mind, I want to handle this two different ways. We are going to get to that, but the first issue is then. Um, well, no, I guess it's all related, is the statements. So um, how does that, like, what, so are you required to uh, file a release or release or allow a release for release of all of your records? Are you required to give a written record, or excuse me, an oral recorded statement? What are your requirements or obligations as far as what the employer can do
2: in, in, these, in these issues and these things? That's a fantastic question, because for, for many reasons, and there's been some recent changes with it becoming more litigious, and I'll roll into those and hopefully yeah. answer your question. Um, so first of all, these are department protocols. So you got to fill them out, or they're going to probably try to Trump something up on you as being more than it is, saying it's insubordinate or whatever. So you don't want to fight that fight, essentially. And guys, of course, wouldn't want to. They just want to be stand up, report the injury. It happened. It is what it is, and that's how guys look at it. Unfortunately, it can be more complicated. So you fill out whatever forms are there. Keep it short and to the point. Less is better. And that's about as much as I can say as a general proposition, to be frank with you. Uh, The difficulty with the releases, which is huge, is... The medical authorizations are now being written by all these third-party companies, IPRF, CCMSI, IPMG, a couple others maybe. And what they're all doing now for the last four or five years is when you're signing the release, they're also putting language in there where you're granting permission for them to contact your doctor and talk to them about diagnosis or restrictions, which is an absolute violation of patient-doctor confidentiality. The only reason they do that is so they can influence your doctor. Hey, are you sure we need the MRI yet? Let's try some more therapy. Hey, are you sure you can't, can't come back to light duty after having shoulder surgery three days ago? You know, hey, all these things, because they can manipulate the relationship. Once again, they can find their way of controlling what's written down in the medical records to affect the most persuasive evidence. So I tell guys, cross out that stuff or text the mouth to me. you got my cell. I'll take out the offensive material because they legally only have the right to request your medical records as they relate to the incident.
1: Right. So, so let me stop you there. They don't have the right to have your entire forty years of medical history prior to this. No. Just the medical records as it relates to this particular injury. Is that correct? That's accurate. Yeah. So, so the the issue with this, and you just kind of really gave a really good you gave a really good example. I've had, you know, fire chiefs or employer attorneys pissed off. These guys are, you know, they're hiring a lawyer right away. Well, you know, firefighters are very good at, you know, pulling a hose line and going into a building, reading a medical authorization release. Maybe some of them went to law school. I know a handful of us, but not all of us, right? So they're the ones who have created these releases yeah. with all sorts of quote-unquote, you know, voluntary allowances and turning over records and whatever. That's why I think it's like I would never recommend one of my barb- bargaining unit members that I represent to go through that medical release on their own without consulting a work comp attorney. Yeah, I think you would be totally insane to do something like that.
2: Well, I, I do tell guys to text me a photo of it and I'll redact it free of charge. You don't have to hire me. Like I make that very clear. I just want to protect you guys up front. I, I make a living. I'm very fortunate. I love what I do. Just text me this stuff up front because they can really screw things up in the beginning. Yeah. Also, in these medical authorizations, it gives them Mm -hmm. an unfettered right to give the records to anybody they feel like, which means they can give them to your chief, your cousin, your neighbor. Right. They're not going to do that, but that's the language. So they could give them to anybody they want. All kinds of medical history that has nothing to do, and you can't stop them if you sign that. So do text it to an attorney. Do consult someone. Absolutely.
0: Can they get that through a verbal conversation, too? uh, That kind of release? Or does it have to be a written document like that? Can they? Like, can they ask you orally? Hey, can is they ask okay you orally, or does it have to be a written document where they can try to get that? Well,
2: they're going to submit to you a medical release form to get records, and in that, that's all written. But no, they wouldn't be able to do that verbally. That must be in writing per okay. HIPAA, is Good. my understanding. Yeah. Okay.
0: okay.
1: Okay. And then, what about them contacting you? And asking, about, asking questions about how you got injured, wanting to do an interview. So these third-party, I mean, do you have an
2: obligation to answer the phone? Do you no, have an none whatsoever, and you should not give a recorded statement Correct. under any circumstance. Um, they will only get through, hey, I'll make it sound really cool. Hey, we're just giving you a call. It's, is it okay if I record this? And they'll start asking you about your whole medical history. Do not give a recorded statement. So there is
1: absolutely... No obligation whatsoever on the part of the injured employee to answer the phone when somebody is contacting them from one of these third-party companies and wants to talk to them about the injury, how did you get hurt, what did you do, et cetera, et cetera. There's no obligation at all. There's none whatsoever. I didn't didn't think so. All right. You would be surprised. Um, I want to... Well, let me, is there anything else regarding the medical releases or them contacting you for a statement that we need to talk about or something that I missed?
2: No, no, you didn't miss anything, but there's always different incantations every department. I've had people, and I won't say the department, trying to give their user um, a letter from their doctor um, to their doctor, informing them all about their wonderful light duty program and how they can do physical therapy actually at the facility while the gentleman is working light duty. And, you know, doctor, won't you sign off on that and give us your phone number? Um, so there's all types of ways they're trying to kind of um, get in between you and your doctor.
1: So to that end, um, do they have a right to have a nurse or a case manager or something along? Well, let me set it up this way. So I've now got my, uh, I went to see my ortho guy. He was my first uh, treater in my chain of referral here. I go in for the consultation or to meet, hey, I injured my knee the case manager or nurse or whomever wants to be in the room with me and the doctor as my knee is getting examined, do you have to allow that individual into the room with you?
2: No, no. One of the first things I do, unless it's an extraordinary case is I pull off the nurse case manager because she's there really to get in between people to, um, to persuade the doctor to do things they wouldn't otherwise do warranted medically and to, get their theory of the case into the records. Plus, they're also documenting everything that they're seeing, talking to the, the person after and before the appointment. Yeah, they're getting better, they're doing better. And so then they have a parallel history of treatment and what's going on day to day, which on paper is is more uh, credible than what the petitioner might end up testifying to when they sure. get to court. And so you don't want that nurse case manager to influence your doctor. And you don't want her to create this whole second set of records as to the things that she said you said to them about how you were getting better, which is invariably what they write down. Yes. And they're doing that, obviously, to try to curtail treatment. And you don't life. have
1: to allow them to speak to your doctor. That is your doctor-patient privilege. Absolutely. So really, I guess the end, of the, the end of the day is any of these nurses, case managers, et cetera, it's my understanding that the employee, the injured employee, has the unfettered right to not allow any access to those records, being in the room, talking to the doctor, anything along those lines.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's great. And that and, that and $2 a cup of coffee will get you a smooth case. It's really right. about practical reality is, is if you refuse them on your own without counsel, they're going to stop, uh, stop authorizing care visits, they're going to mess with you, and it's going to become messy. Yeah, But they don't have that right. But they also will do whatever they can to, to stretch the law. And if there's no one there to stop them, you know, it's really a difficult uh, situation to navigate. Okay.
0: Well, and typically they start into the employee with, hey, I'm here to assist you, make sure your oh, care yeah. is great, and we're going to help you get through this process faster. So they portray themselves as, hey, I'm here to help you. I'm here to make sure your doctor does the right things. Yeah, because but they're really not there for that. So they really try to, am I I'm a correct? They're, in this, they're, they're, they're t- spies, yeah. and they're
2: manipulators for the insurance company, very frankly. And, oh, because the doctor who's a specialist in orthopedic surgery needs a nurse to help him find out how to treat a patient yeah i, right, I don't right. think so yeah
1: like yeah the badass ortho guy that went yeah. to school for because it goes to from god to jesus to orthopedic right. doctors he needs the nurse in the room for help right she's right? non practicing
2: yeah, yeah. nurse she's a non-practicing yeah. nurse which is how much she cares about helping people yes. she's now working for an insurance company trying to prevent yes. care so clearly gonna help that doctor clearly her heart's in the right place yeah. um
1: I mean and I guess it, I mean overall you know we have we, I I can just envision you know like a bunch of kids to and from the firehouse listening to this podcast and like having the shit scared out of them you know and it's like you don't want to be that way but we I guess we've seen so many different horror stories of how this goes that it's really unfortunate cuz you'd like to think that everybody's a good actor but you know you th- this is how you protect yourself right and it's just it's it it's unfortunate that we have to be like this, but I feel like we didn't start it. So no, you know what I mean, like I didn't create change the authorization. That no, yeah, exactly.
2: And listen, they they have a whole game plan of litigation from the moment you provide notice of injury, and they start to shove you down that trail and box you into a corner medically administratively and so these things are buyer beware and it's it's in such stark contrast to the brotherhood that exists in my experience based on all the firefighters and then when you get hurt all of a sudden you're a liability to the municipality and you're being treated like a criminal right and so that drives a lot of guys into consulting me because they're just like they're so upset by what are we doing this bre- this breach of trust like i'm risking my life working all these hours doing all these extraordinary things you're giving me commendations and then i blow out a knee and I'm a criminal, you know, it's, so yeah, it's, it's really biting them back and it's necessitating more, more litigation. And they're, they're driving this stuff. So they've got attorneys working on their behalf and it'd be wise of you to consult with one if you're in the circumstance for that reason. I totally
1: agree. I, so, so you go to your, um, and I don't want to, I just, Actually, really a question for me. You go to your uh, treating ortho guy. You're super happy with him. He sits there and says, um, "Yeah, this knee. You're going to have to have some tor- some type of ortho surgery. Whatever it is, what it is. What right does the employer have to send you for a second opinion?" with a work comp ortho to determine whether or not you still, you you know, he agrees with mm-hmm. your treater
2: that you need the knee injury, and that's gonna the ha- knee surgery, excuse me. And that's going to happen every time. Correct. Um, so these are independent medical evaluations under Section 12 of the Act. The employer has a right to have you examined by a doctor of their choice, and you have to cooperate with that legally. And if you do not, they can cut off your PETA and workers' compensation pay. And so they get to choose those doctors. They are always the same class of doctors that I've been seeing. I've always seen the same
1: four or five names over and over Oh,
2: yeah. These are always frequent flyers. And uh, listen, the issue with choosing a doctor really relates to this because even your primary care doctor isn't going to know that the ortho that they're buddies with they send clients to happens to collect $400,000 last year to defend workers' compensation claims. And so... The doctors are getting squeezed by the insurance companies. If you go there to treat for that knee injury, they might get 60 or $70 reimbursed. But if they examine you and do this examination from the department or IPMG, they get $1,500 for that same amount of time. They dictate the same exam to the nurse. They walk out the door, and they get 1500 bucks, yeah. And no one negotiates them down on that. And then when they get depositions, they get $2,000, $3,000. I had a two-hour one this morning. I got paid probably four or $5,000 for that time. So now the guys are making 15 to 30 times more money doing these defense exams than they do actually treating patients. And if you've been in a quality orthopedic practice, this doctor may only be in clinics seeing patients twice a week because he's operating and doing depositions. And he's got like 60 people. That's why you go there and your appointment's 45 minutes late. Right, right. Because they're getting, it's a factory. Yeah, it's a factory. Yeah. And so if these doctors can do... Five, seven, nine reports. That's fifteen grand a week and reports in, in under an so hour and a half. What you're
1: telling me is that you and I got into the wrong profession becoming legal. Counsel, oh yeah,
2: right? I was good at science. I,
1: <laughs> I wouldn't be yeah. here. So what happens then? So your treating ortho says no. Look, look, it's obvious. I'm looking at the MRI. This guy needs surgery. The IME uh, doc says no. Nah, I don't think so. And I think you can treat this conservatively. What happens next?
2: Well, um, it depends on a lot of of things. There's a lot. It's a big split. I can go in many directions from that. Obviously, they could... Um, and then that, that doctor on top of that says, oh, he can we go back to full duty. Then you're going to be asked to go to full duty. Yeah. So I'm going to file trial motion. I'm going to request that I depose that doctor to uh, cross-examine his mm-hmm. medical basis for such an opinion.
1: You guys will then, well, we're will routinely go on the Industrial Commission as fast as possible to try to either you know, put a stop to it or some, oh, yeah. you know, something along those oh, lines.
2: Oh, yeah. I right? file emergency motions every month. Is
1: that the 19B motions? Have 19B right? and yeah. I
2: do B1 so we get a full decision from the commission, the first level of review above within six months they're arduous, but it can get caught in the commission for two and a half years. And yes. what do you do? So honestly, when you get in a circumstance like that, because it takes a few months just to get the depth scheduled, you got to coordinate two attorneys and this orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. So I end up saying, get it done through group health insurance. Give me all your out of pocket medical. Cause the biggest thing I have to show is not just causation. Cause if you just did depositions and then give it to an arbitrator, arbitrators looking at two different orthopedic surgeons testifying. He's not a medical doctor he's not really qualified, not his fault, to assess two different doctors' opinion on what they see on the MRI. It's like looking at clouds, you know? Right. And anyway, so the biggest thing is, so when you get the surgery done through group, I know that'll upset people. I'm not trying to foist medical care under the group plan. What I'm trying to do is to get the guy fixed on the road to recovery so he can rehab while I have to... Fight this well, thing out for On a, for a parallel few track,
1: you're fighting with the employer in front of the book. And the
2: huge advantage to that is it takes it out of the realm of conjecture, out of opinion, out of looking at MRIs, and this is black, and this guy says it's white, is the issue is once your treating doctor has gone in that knee and seen the meniscal tear and repaired the area repaired the ACL or MCL or whatever – and the, the uh, IME doctor said, oh, there is no tear. It's just some degeneration and uh, conservative right. care is appropriate. Like, oh, here's the five tears, right? And doctors said, well, when, when I go to testify, I had their testimony, and I can confront them with the operative findings. I said, well, Dr. Smith found this tear wouldn't you agree he's in a better position intraoperatively to assess the condition of the right. knee what's he going to say Since he was physically looking yeah, inside looking the guy's you. Yeah, knee what's right? he going to say right. regardless of his answer he's done right so that's what it does and then so they're rehabbing while i'm discrediting the doctor and then pushing towards trial and usually they end up just saying okay we're going to accept the case yeah because yeah. but you got to have somebody who's aggressive and i, I love what i do and I was the son of a, a nurse and a union maintenance engineer. And so I nerd out in the medicine. I love cracks, trust the experts. I've been very fortunate to not ever lose a case in my, my career. Um, it's very much because I really spend hours and hours. Like the depth this morning, I've, I spent probably 18, 20 hours prepping for it. Cause it really is the trial in many aspects. Right. Once you destroy that medical opinion, it's a little wonky. Yeah. yeah, they might still fight it, but they're going to talk turkey when you're pushing them to trial. So I just create maximum pressure, destroy the medical opinions, and move forward. In the meantime, the guy's getting healthier. He's in rehab. And also, when I go into the depth and say, yeah, he was disabled before, but then. After he's doing better and he's stronger and less pain complaints, it already shows that the surgery itself was reasonable because right. they're doing better by the time we get the trial or I'm crossing their expert. And that's why it's really important to do that surgery. It gives you a huge medical advantage, a huge litigation advantage, and they're getting towards getting back to work, which is the goal. So,
0: uh, an- another basic you mentioned in this whole conversation earlier, Pat, was PETA. Can we kind of explain that, what benefit our, our members do have, police and firefighters, over a regular worker when it comes to PETA and what it is. Yeah. I think it'd be great to kinda of lay that out there for the yeah. listeners.
2: Although that's part of the pension law. I've, I've read a lot of cases having to do with that because it's incumbent on me to know that as well as a workers compensation attorney. So PETA is basically that you get the remaining third. Comp pays two thirds of your, your weekly your average weekly wage. And then PETA pays the remaining third out of the department so you're made whole while on a duty related injury. For a year. For up to a year, but you can get workers comp two thirds Oh, for, yeah. forever, as long as your doctor's got you on uh, modified duty or restricted from work, as well as no reduction um, in any other corollary benefits. For so it's just as though you kept working. Right. No diminution in rank, no effect to your vacation time A or Vacation, absolutely. So that's that's the the crux of the PETA benefit, as I understand it. Yeah. So
1: what else in the work comp process do we need? Would our members need to know? What did we not touch on? Um. I think this was a fantastic general overview. Of well, this
2: you know, of the just flashing numbers of my phone number would be great. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> yeah, kidding. Yeah, yeah. No, moving on to the, the late the,
1: night commercial, like one thirty. Yeah. Tomorrow, getting the billboards. Right. Cool mile, right. right. <laughs> a couple
2: sets of bench presses to get out there with Mike <laughs> yeah, Lerner. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, next set, brother. Next set. Get yeah. after it. Um, so the firefighter's presumption, the heart and lung act, everyone wants to yes. talk about. And guys are always perplexed and, and understandably so because the statute's pretty clear. If you've been working as a firefighter for the five preceding years, if you get a hernia or you get cancer or you get uh, heart disease heart disease, or communicable HIV infection, other bloodborne illness, it should be covered. And it's a presumption. Well, unfortunately, there's a, a case called um, Johnston, the appellate court. The appellate court is very not friendly to the Workers' Compensation Act. And what they said is if the employer put forth any other reason for why you might have had a heart attack. That's
1: considered the rebuttable?
2: Yeah, the rebuttal presumption. Then the, then the presumption pops and goes away completely. So you can say, uh, because firefighters, you know, BMI is really upsetting for any of us who like food. Right. And it's hardly a, a decent measure of obesity because, especially if firefighters, you guys are carrying more muscle. You're bigger guys. Right. And no just, sleep. Yeah, just because your BMI is 33 doesn't mean you're fat. It just means you're not a freaking Damn. their model or whatever. Oh my In my case, though, I don't know. All right, go ahead. Hey, me too. I've been fighting it always, you know. Everything's There's delicious. muscle under there, Jerry. Ah, yeah. Deep, 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 down. deep. All right, yeah. So, so in that case, if they had a heart attack and said, well, you were obese or you, you smoked for five years and quit 20 years ago, as far as the appellate court's concerned, that presumption goes away
0: completely.
2: It's amazing that any rebuttable will instantly. And they said it's a bubble that pops, is the uh, analogy that the appellate court used. Wow. Now, that was in a workers' compensation case, and I can distinguish that nerd out, but I don't want to. So let it be known that if you have these issues, and I had an asymmetric aortic tear, and we proved recently I've had MRSA cases I've won. Um, we've got, I've done cancer, uh, brain, lung, uh, you name it. And so ultimately you hope the treating doctor will put some type of causation opinion in the treating records. That, And that's why it's incumbent on guys, if you get one of these things, it's really important that you talk to your treaters about all your exposures. You Know that we've got, you know, we didn't get the good diesel exhaust uh, uh, the plume vent systems and Donner yeah. wasn't well. And it smelled like uh, diesel oil, or diesel fuel throughout the thing. We didn't have proper washing of our gear. They never steam clean the couches or whatever it might be. And I look at all these aspects as, as exposure points, especially for the cancer cases. And um, hopefully, your treating doctor will put that in the record, some causal opinion. But if they don't, you're not going to win that case at trial because they can pull anything out of their ear. Your your mom's grandfather had pancreatic cancer and now you've got a different type of cancer. Well that's enough for the bubble to pop Health court said so That's so, rough on the,
1: on the work compound.
2: So yeah and it, so I have to hire an expert. once again, it's a premium on getting the right experts so I've got the head of environmental medicine at UIC and in different Philadelphia hospitals to come in and testify that it's not just the specialist so your specialist might be helpful throwing a causal opinion in there, but that's not enough to try the case and get through. Um, occupational medical doctors really are the ones to hire because they know all the studies at firefighters. And I'll tell you, I've been trying these cases since uh, 2005, and the studies that came out in this country after 9-11 have made it so much better because the literature is out there where it didn't used to be. And so I, I arm up these guys if they don't have the, the, the uh, epidemiological studies that, they, that we need to support the case, and the expert obviously testifies that these obviously being exposed to carcinogens and off-gassing post cleaning up a fire or knocking down houses, making sure the fire is out. You know, expose it, but they may not have oxygen at those times. And uh, stupidly, the insurance companies always focus on how many fires you went to or how long they were. And, of course, those aren't going to be really convincing because instead of a few departments, you're not constantly going to fires. It's probably the last thing. You do the, all the duties, you know. Right. Might be mostly paramedic calls. So it's really important to get these occupational medical specialists to testify, and that's how I win these cases. It's a whole separate out. way of trying a
1: case, though. I mean, it's like night and day from the ortho injury that we use as kind of the historical, you know. Yeah, well,
2: it's the Illinois Occupational Disease case, right. which is the sister act to the, uh, the compact.
0: What about in the last year? Obviously, and I know you've been working through these cases with COVID. Um, it's presumed uh, we were able to pass that legislation for it. And I think Jerry and I were talking about this before. I think a lot of guys too, right now, they might have had it and they don't think much about it. What happens when we're still learning about COVID and its effects on the body? But ten years from now, uh, you have strokes or some other things down the line. They could been related to this. How do you think? I mean, how does that? Pretty unfair question,
2: but how do you just? No, it's fair. I've, I've had four or five long track, long haul cases right now, and I tell them. Go, so the biggest thing is issue with these issues and the, the biggest sequela or, or issues come off COVID, obviously the COVID is presumed, and that's lovely, and that's important, very important. Um, but there is a, a conservatism that runs through cardiologists and pulmonologists and medical doctors mostly. Obviously, they're by-the-book kind of gossip, They wouldn't have gotten through medical school. And because their history of working with COVID is brand new. So your garden variety pulmonologist or cardiologist is not going to say that uh, the COVID caused rapid heart heartbeat or hypercardia, or the fact that my blood pressure, all of a sudden I'm doing blood pressure meds. Spiked, yeah. I have so many examples of saying, well, I'm going to give you the albuterol and all the inhalers for asthma, but I'm not going to diagnose you with asthma, which leaves him swinging in the wind. So cutting to the, to the answer is you really have to make an appointment with these COVID clinics at Northwestern or Rush. And why it's so important is from a care perspective, they've seen everything and you're going to have a multidisciplinary approach to your sickness. You're going to have neurologists, you're going to have um, nephrologists, whoever might be there, and they're all going to confer, which is huge from a care perspective. But not only that, the pulmonologists and cardiologists who are in the COVID center at Rush, by virtue of being of a COVID center, they've already accepted the proposition that these pulmonary problems, these cardiac problems, do relate to the COVID infection. And of course, you get the Um, You get the improper and the persuasiveness of having a major hospital behind saying these things. And also you get the most effective care. And so it proves the case by treating it. And it will probably prevent me from even having to hire an expert because I've already got the experts who are treating you. So don't mess around. Do not go to your group health, you know, advocate center or whatever pulmonologist. It's not going to go well. Um, Just go to the COVID centers. And they're going to create that medical basis that I'll need should something come up down the road to prove that whatever issue might have been, you got a fighting chance. because anything that pops up four or five, six years later, that's going to be a rough case to prove. Right. But if you got treated from the front and you had some pulmonary symptoms and they re- resolved over time and you had some cardiac stuff or nephrology or affected your internal systems, there might be research three, four years later that shows that you do have long-term effects. But without creating that record up front which if it's not a big deal for you, how, why would you do it? But without creating that record up front, you've never planted the seeds for me to later show that subsequent right. research has now proven this is going to cause Because there's going or, to be
1: decades of study over right. COVID and what we all just went through the once in a you know, hundred year global Very pandemic.
2: much like 9-11, right? There's yes. The firefighters are still fighting in New York. They're still fighting for stuff. Yeah. And all the science has come out to help show it proved, but it took years for it to mature. That was yeah. a good question. Yeah, yeah and, and it, you know even
0: other science that's evolving still, and I'm I'm looking on the wall here, our turnout gear. You know, there's there's thought process. Yeah, there's now lawsuits now over the turnout gear. And, that's maybe a cancer avenue for us, you know, and that stuff evolves. So I think it's important to stay on top of all that different yeah. uh, research because it, it it is important to all of us and our health and, and long term uh, lifestyle. It and I'll
2: tell you the, the relationships I had with firefighters and unions have been so helpful because I've got. I'm only one guy, and even if I'm into it, I'm dealing with a lot of different stuff. So I may not hear every news story about the protective neck stuff that's causing the cancer. They had the previous versions. I forgot the company. But I've got guys call me about that stuff. So I become this repository for it, and then I look it up and research it, so I'm ready to go. And it makes me better at what I do. And so the biggest thing I talk to guys is just give me a call, man, because, you know, what maybe separates me in, in some way is that I have a lot of communication with my clients. I have a lot of staff for as big of a firm I have. I've got five or six different staff, so I can focus my time on litigating and talking to my clients, because if I know what's important to guys throughout the case, I can get out in front of the issue before it becomes a problem. Right. And that's that makes all the difference in many ways. So...
1: I think that this was a absolutely fantastic general overview for work comp for guys and what they can or cannot do. It is remarkable to me on the work comp end how much misinformation there is out there amongst our members. Because I have guys ask me, oh, I'm like, where did you even come up with something like that that you <laughs> thought, you know what I mean? Like, what planet, you know? Like, no, you don't have to do X, Y, and Z. But I don't know. Any last-minute thoughts or questions, Luke? No, this I was, think
0: uh – I think it's important for my members to understand the rights as far as it comes to work comp, you know. And if you got questions, make sure you ask. Yep. You Patrick know,
1: get, Soroka, you uh, can uh, find him everywhere that Google is found. And uh, yeah,
2: Soroka Law. And guys, I just want to thank you again. It's a privilege to be here and to speak to your membership. And thanks so much for the invitation. This was absolutely
1: fantastic. It. And there will be, guys, it'll be funny. We'll release this. And then within like three, four weeks, we'll be getting text messages from like union presidents like, yeah, you know, it's sent this and our guy did X, Y, and Z based on this. We've had it on other podcasts. So this yeah. is, there will be real world help here for uh, for our membership.
2: And I have a lot of this stuff on, on PDF and hyperlink text. So if guys come in, I can kind of give a short presentation to the guys so just so they can have the base information to pass out. Read and, through this. Because, you know, for me too, I, you hear all kinds of stuff and until I see it written down, it doesn't quite stick, yeah. but maybe that's just me, Yeah, you know. No,
1: fantastic, and Perfect. thank you so much for your time. You. This was great, and uh, everybody take care, and, and stay safe out right there.